These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Today's tale is an odd one for many reasons. It is, by most reckonings, the last of the long-form epics known to cuneiform culture, which is a bit of a shame since we really haven't quite hit the peak of Mesopotamian civilization yet. But while later writers will produce science and poetry of yet unparalleled subtlety, and they'll do a lot to standardize and improve upon the works we've already read on the show, we date the epic of Era, who's also known as Nurgle, and Isham to a particular scribe, Kabti Ilani Marduk of the Dabibi clan. We don't know exactly when he lived, but our main source for him comes from a copy written from on commission from Ashurbanipal sometime between about 650 and 630 BCE. As usual, the question of whether it's actually written at that time or composed far earlier and merely copied or collated then remains, but in this case, it does seem that we're looking at a novel composition right around that time or at most a few generations earlier. Rather more interesting is when the epic is actually set within its own narrative context. It references a great destruction in Babylon, we'll be seeing that, but given the fact that Babylon was in decline pretty much from the 12th to the 8th centuries on and off, we don't actually know which period of decline the epic is referring to. But the biggest temporal issue and the reason that I've been so excited to get into this story is that it's become again relevant in the modern day. Fans of the Warhammer franchise, a universe of sci-fi and fantasy games, will know that the story of that universe includes the tale of Nurgle and Isha. Now, the title of that, if perhaps little else, was clearly taken from this ancient epic. At least one of the founders of Warhammer was obviously trained in classics, even if he, equally clearly, didn't always quite remember the details. Anyway, in actual history, Era, or Nurgle, is one of the major underworld gods, especially in the later period. He does govern plagues, but he also has a whole host of destructive powers available to him if he gets irritated at someone. Like most major gods, he has a small host of follower gods that surround him. His wife, Mami, is a mother goddess, often syncretized with Ninhursag, and thus one of the creators of humanity. And so this is one of those marriages of opposites, an underworld god and a mother goddess. Then Era has seven warriors, who, like Ninurta's famous mace, are both weapons and people simultaneously. Isham, meanwhile, is a fire god. His name is literally derived from Ishatam, the Akkadian word for fire, but while his domain is kind of broad, he's especially the flame which burns in the night, illuminating dark areas, making him something of a night watchman and hero of the village and town. Isham does get worshipped independently, and indeed is in fact a much older god than his patron in this tale, having attestations all the way back to before the Akkadian Empire, 
but by the later period, he is essentially Nurgle's vizier. Why any of these disparate gods should come to have been related, I have no idea, but it clearly made sense to someone at some point. Anyway, rather than trying to summarize what happens, because it's kind of odd, the best way to understand our story is to just launch right into it. And we open in Era's bedroom, creeping on the god as he sleeps in bed with his wife, Mommy. The poem, in proper ancient style, begins by singing praises to the gods involved, and already at the very first three lines, we hit a pretty major translation difficulty. Rather than my usual practice of filling in blanks and smoothing over difficulties, listen to these first lines with the blanks left out. O king of all populated lands, creator of the universe, dot, dot, dot. Hendersanga, firstborn of Enlil, dot, dot, dot. Bearer of the August Scepter, shepherd of the black-headed people, herdsman of, dot, dot, dot. Now that whole king of the universe thing, as well as the son of Enlil bit, well, that really sounds a whole lot like this is talking about Marduk. And yet, while Marduk does show up in this poem, the subject here is unquestionably Era. And while Hendersanga is an obscure title, it seems to be related to Era. And to add to the complication, we'll see in the lines immediately following this that Isham is actually the subject driving the action at the very beginning. So if all three are possibilities, who is the praise opening the poem directed towards? Now this is actually relevant because it affects the possible cultic and ritual context of the work, as well as coloring who exactly is the bad guy in the tale to come. There is a body of scholars who believes that none of these myths that we read were standalone stories, but were all originally narrative supplements to various ritual events, kind of the way that Jews read the Book of Easter in a ritualized manner to celebrate the holiday of Purim, or how many Christian denominations will have passion plays around Easter time. Knowing, for example, that the Enuma Elish was an integral part of the Babylonian New Year festival gives us a great deal more understanding of both the festival and the narrative. But without knowing the god in the insipid dedicatory praise, we lose a good deal of certainty about the wider meaning of the story. Now, this sort of difficulty of sometimes not knowing who's performing the actions is actually pretty common in ancient texts. It's kind of how they were written. It's You had to know what was going on already when you read it. But given the nature of this particular work, with a ton of dialogue and very little action to provide context, it's sometimes extremely difficult to know who's being discussed and who is speaking. So anyway, we're in Era's bedroom. Era and his wife are sleeping, and we've just praised some god or another. Our camera then turns to Isham, Era's sort of secretary god, who's sort of hanging around with a pair of blood-soaked axes in his hands. 
This is apparently normal in the era household. Isham is breathing heavily, and his eyes are wonky with bloodlust. Lightning launches from his body like spears, and even Era, though still asleep, would be afraid of this display. Somewhere in the palace are the Seven Warriors, also called the Seven Weapons, because they are both weapons and warriors, and Isham bellows out at them to prepare the deadly venom upon their plaids and prepare for war. A worshipper at this point appears to kind of break the fourth wall and gets the story a bit confused, insisting that Isham shall head for the battlefield, for he is the torchlight that guides warriors, and he is the champion that the gods will march behind. Isham is the sword and the butcher. Again, that part's really confused because a lot of these are actually Era's titles and Era's responsibilities. But again, maybe this was written as a praise poem to Isham specifically in an Isham-focused ritual. It's not clear at all. Anyway, we then return to the narrative and start to get a little bit clearer. Isham is still screaming, Wake up, Era! Destroy the whole country with me! It's going to fill your heart with joy as we devastate everything. And as Isham is screaming like a madman, he's covered, like physically covered, in power and slaughter. Era's just laying in his bed, and he's so tired. Oh my goodness, he's so tired, and he has no idea what absolute nonsense is going on outside the bed. In his heart, like he's got his eyes closed, he's not moving, he's making a point not to move, and he's asking himself inside if he should wake up and deal with this or just go back to bed. And after some internal, extremely sleepy deliberation, he moans at his weapons to be quiet and go back to their rooms. He then rolls over and goes back to sleep as the narrator pulls back from the scene, explaining that Era sleeps whenever he is not awakened. Which, indeed, I also sleep when I am not awake. For even though he is Engadudu, Lord who wanders the night, he much prefers sleeping in bed with his wife. And indeed, I also prefer that. This Era guy seems pretty relatable. In stark contrast to sleepy Nergal stands the Sabidi, which is literally just Akkadian for the number seven, for these are the seven warriors of Era who were just told to go back to sleep. Their origins are otherworldly, and their aspects are pure terror. They are full of murderous power, and Isham alone is the power which contains them. One day, An up in his heavens sent down a shooting star onto the earth, and from that smoking crater was born seven godlings, each of which stood at attention before their father An and received their powers and destinies. This, if you can't tell, is something of a flashback while Era continues to sleep. The first of the Sabidi was given the power to cause scattering terror and to lead the band of seven. The second could shoot divine flames. The third caused paralyzing terror that causes enemies to collapse. 
The fourth could crush mountains with his arms. The fifth had wind powers strong enough to blow anyone off the edge of the planet, which of course was flat like a table. The sixth was given the gift of thoroughness, like a mighty flood, to ensure that his brothers did not miss any stragglers. The power and destiny of the seventh was simply slay whatever lives. These seven were given by An to Era, so that whenever humans got too irritating or noisy, or just, you know, whenever Era felt like it, they could all get together and massacre people and animals until all that was left was the peace of the desert, the silence of death. It is these whom Sleepy Era is trying to shush, and they get only more outraged by his lack of enthusiasm. They shout at him to get up, get out of bed. He's acting like an old man, like a helpless baby, like a woman, or even worse, like a person who's never fought in any war. The battlefield is better than a feast, and the great man who avoids war will be scorned by the people. Sleeping in bed, or even ruling in a city, makes a man infinitely weaker than one who regularly goes out to maim and slaughter his neighbors. The Seven don't let up in their name-calling just this, though, and in fact, this speech is one of the most remarkable pro-war, pro-violent speeches I've ever come across. And I don't know if any of you listening happen to be teachers in world literature classes or something like this. I would say, I'm going to put a link in the episode description to a one translation of the Epic of Era and Isham. Find this speech. It really is I think, something remarkable in all of world history. I am, for the sake of time and not being super repetitive, going to mostly summarize it for, it, for you. But just the fact that it's pro-war, not, they're not advocating war for some particular purpose, mind you. They're not advocating war for glory or defense. These seven are pro-war for the sake of war. And the argument put into their mouths appears on its surface to be a genuine, good-faith attempt to promote war as an activity which should be engaged in its, in for its own sake, even without external reasons. And of course, this makes the comparison to the war game Warhammer even more apt, since in most war games, the war is itself the most direct per focus, not the purposes of war. Now, in this is odd for us, because in modern times, we do have pro-war commentators on TV, in the news, in politics, whatever. But none of these pro-war commentators that we have nowadays are, I think, universally pro-war, or at least if they are, they don't articulate a universally pro-war message. Rather, our pro-war people endorse war as a means to some sort of end, like national glory, or spreading an ideology, or increasing national wealth through territory acquisition. The Seven, however, you see, they let us know that bread tastes better 
when you eat it in a war camp. The finest beer is not as satisfying as water in a warrior's wineskin. Beds in the finest palace don't give as good a night's sleep as sleeping by the road while on campaign. What is good in life is to scream out a battle cry and bang weapons together in a cry that will terrify everyone, from the high and low gods in heaven to the kings and peasants of the earth. Era's power and war noise is so powerful that it'll cause kings to submit and offer tribute, while lesser men will simply die. The strongest of men weaken before him, and the mountains crumble. The toughest reeds, the thickest trees, the mightiest ocean waves are all uprooted. Men will cower and beasts will tremble, returning to the clay from which they're made. And when the world sees this display of power, all will praise the warrior's valor. All these things are intrinsically good and reflect the profound moral virtue of the man who terrifies and dominates the world around him. The seven then pause to apologize to their master for suggesting, even briefly, that he lacks moral fiber for staying in bed rather than pursuing slaughter. But it is sort of a sorry-not-sorry sorry kind of situation, as not only is war an intrinsic lust of all real men, and by extension all glorious gods, but it's also a necessary duty of both Era and the warrior in general for the maintenance of the universal order. The gods, you see, need occasional rounds of slaughter to keep the world from growing too noisy. Similarly, the animals must be culled to prevent the fields from being overrun, and there's a good chance that they mean the beasts of the field at least partly in a metaphorical sense, with humans being included therein. The shepherd, too, needs his enemies slaughtered to secure the peace of the flocks. But worst of all, war is a metaphysical necessity. Definitely so for Era, the underworld god, and his seven divine warriors, but also implicitly for the mortal warrior as well. Weapons will rust, bows will grow stiff and brittle, and the warrior himself falls out of practice. Our blades, say the seven, are corroded for want of a slaughter. Now, through this speech, Era has been slowly waking up. And as it concludes, the underworld god is now fully awake. There is some narrative confusion between here and the beginning, as now Era is awake, but the fire god Isham is now apparently supporting passivity. Now, this could be an issue with damaged tablets or with transmission issues, or it could go back to the questions at the beginning of our story. But either way, we're just going to roll with it. Era is now enthusiastic about violence, and he orders the Seven into formation. They're going to march out on campaign. No specific destination is mentioned. The campaign seems to be that they're just going to go forward and slaughter whatever they come across. And this, of course, is the plot for a great many video games, proving yet again that it isn't video games that make men violent, but men who make their video games to be violent in service to their natural desires. Even 
modern soldiers who so often despise war frequently play Call of Duty. Isham, however, speaks up at this point. He says that, hey, did you know, did you know, here's a fun fact, indiscriminate, purposeless slaughter is, you know, maybe not super nice, and it's kind of inconvenient for the people being slaughtered, to which Era provides the rational counterpoint, shut up. Besides which, Era continues, I, Nurgle, am the most awesome of all the gods. I am a lion, a battle standard, a king. I am divine fury, a rampaging wildfire, the mighty champion. I am bow and axe and hunting trap. I travel freely over all the lands, from one edge of the earth to the other, in the skies, in the fields, and in the steppes. And yet, despite that, the humans of the earth haven't given me quite as much respect as I think that I'm owed. And everyone knows that respect must be earned, not given. And the best way to earn respect is, of course, to slaughter a person's family until they start saying nicer things about you. It's the Kim Jong-il approach to being revered. And what's more, either Marduk, the king of the universe, has failed in his duties, or I, Nurgle, have failed in my duties to Marduk, whichever the correct translation is here. It's a little bit ambiguous, but either way, I've decided that I'm going to make him mad as a cool prank, and also going to commit an unprecedented slaughter, also as a cool prank. So Era goes to the town of Shu'ana, which exists in heaven. You're not going to find it on any map. And he enters the Esagila, which is Marduk's temple. This temple exists both in heaven and in Babylon. It isn't two temples in two cities. It is one temple bridging the two cities like some kind of awesome space portal. Entering the house of the king of gods, Era's first words are... Why is all your stuff so dirty, Marduk? This is, of course, neither subtle nor respectful. Marduk is forced to respond, taking this marked insult uh, rather more like a genuine critique of the state of the world than just, just an insult. Marduk explains that way back when, you see, during that great flood in which only Noah, or Ziadsura, or Utnapishtim, or whoever, back during the great flood, uh, it turns out that putting that flood together really upset the natural order of the universe. The stars got all wonky. They got, like, wet or something. Who knows? The earth left behind was just filthy, even though it had been, you'd think it had been washed, but no, it was filthy. Fertility itself was just irreparably broken. Not only did not as much seed come from each crop, but the humans and animals were no longer massive giants, just teeny tiny beings. A person is only like five or six feet tall now. That's pathetic. Marduk, he sits back in his throne, and as best he can manage, and he wonders, you know... Should he just kill everything that survived? Since it's now hardly worth the effort to have a whole world beneath me if it's going to be in this 
awful state of, of affairs. But eventually Marduk calls down to his divine craftsmen and he tells them to fix the place up a bit. Problem is, it turns out that the magical stones and divine woods that were used in the construction of the very best stuff, especially the most ancient of idols and temples, well, it kind of seems maybe they were all used up in the first go-around of making the universe. Or it could be that they've all been lost, like, everything's a mess, you can't find where you put your stuff, Marduk. Where'd you put the good stuff? Nobody knows. I mean, more to the point, the greatest of the divine craftsmen are simply nowhere to be found at this point. They don't know who are these craftsmen that are reporting. Obviously not the ones Marduk called, because he wanted the best. And the best are just gone. The world has moved on now, into a new and inferior state. And here comes you, Era, ready to make it even worse with your loud, violent nonsense. Now, at this, Era perks up, because... All warriors are inherently noble, and they're just looking for an excuse to do the right thing and make the world better through indiscriminate slaughter. He says, Marduk, look, if we're missing the magic stones, the divine woods, and the heavenly craftsmen, then let's go on a grand quest, you and me, like a buddy comedy road trip kind of thing. Not only will this be a ton of fun, but we can make the universe a better place. But Marduk says that this is impossible, for if he were to get up from his throne, it would be an utter disaster. To bring Warhammer back into it, the Emperor, or in this case Marduk, cannot rise from his throne because things are so bad that the light itself would snuff out, and all that is good would be consumed in an ever-rising tide of all that is evil. Monsters of all sort flooding in from every corner. Chaotic winds would blow through the aether. Travelers wouldn't be able to see where they're traveling. And worst of all, there would be a whole bunch of naked people in the streets which would force the high gods to come down and eat all of the naked people. The, the logic in that last bit is a bit hard to really understand, but the general sense of bad times for all is clear enough. The subtext to all this hubbub about Marduk needing to sit on his throne, but also needing some special materials and craftsmen, is believed to be the earthly reality that the actual earthly temple of Marduk needed renovating. And the cult image itself needed to be either refurbished or replaced. But because this story is set during the Bronze Age collapse, or perhaps in the hard centuries afterwards, the, the rare materials used in the original statue are no longer available, because, of course, the international trade networks that bring exotic materials from distant places have fallen apart. But up in heaven, Eris says that tired old Marduk can just lay down in his inner sanctum and leave the entire world order to him, Nurgle, god of destruction. Era's plan seems to be to just turn his tremendous destructive potential solely against the supernatural agents of destruction. 
Just give Era the keys to the universe, and he will fight fire with fire, and surely nothing bad could possibly happen. Marduk gives a tired, wan smile at this plan, and then he goes to have a nap. He really needs it, and he tosses the keys to Era as he goes. As soon as he does, everything immediately falls apart. The gods run away and hide. The sun and moon and stars run away and hide. The entire world order collapses. And Era stands in the middle of it, ready and waiting for a whole army of evil spirits and deities to plow through. And yet even though he's standing there, at the gates, ready to defend the world order, nothing comes to attack. The grand machinery of the universe simply fails, and all life falls silent around him. Our story becomes fragmentary at this point. It's hard to see exactly what's going on in the text, but soon enough Ea, Marduk's father, god of creation and magic and fabricator of humanity, has appeared on the scene. He sees Nurgle standing guard, waiting for an enemy which has yet to arrive, and Ea berates him. Where, Ea asks, has all the splendor which Marduk breathed into the universe gone? Where are all the cult images which are the spiritual pillars of the universe fallen into disrepair? Ea says, don't worry, don't worry, Papa. I'm standing watch. I won't allow anyone to get in and touch any of the precious ritual objects in the inner sanctums of the temples. To which Ea replies, No! You have to let people in. We have enchanted some human craftsmen with perfect wisdom and dexterity to repair the cult statues, and only they can fix the broken universe. But Era now stubbornly sees his job as guarding, heedless of context or purpose. How can there be evil in the world when no villain has yet challenged him? He refuses to move until he gets his battle. Then mighty Ishtar, she shows up at this point, and she pleads with him, and we don't know what she says, we lose more of the text, but the great gods seem to consult about this era issue, because nobody can figure out what to do. But after meeting in a big council, they finally decide on a course of action, because, of course, the idea of committees being useless and indecisive hadn't been invented yet. Someone decides that Era's buddy Isham is the only one who can convince Era to stop guarding the universe and let people in for some maintenance. We don't see Era standing down, but the next time we see the god, he's in his temple pouting. He can't understand what went wrong. He guarded so well, yet he wasn't able to have any fights with anyone and everyone's mad at him, and they fired him from guard duty. It isn't fair. So he puts a bunch of angry tweets on Twitter or X, but that doesn't accomplish anything. And so he decides instead 
to go fix it. And of course, by fix it, he means to plunder the sun, to shatter the moon, and beat down the rain clouds. Marduk and Ea, kings of the gods, have become fat and lazy. He will oppress them and enslave them and force them to obey him. With the power of the universal order in his hands, he will correct all that is wrong in the world. He's going to do that through murder. He'll ruin cities and flatten mountains. He's going to sterilize the oceans and light the swamps ablaze. He will kill every human, every wild animal, every livestock, leaving not even a single seed. He's even going to destroy abstract principles like mortal kingship and the family unit and the social order. Wild animals are going to enter the cities. Wild barbarians are going to enter the inner sanctums of temples. And wild demons are going to get set loose in the heavens. Nurgle cares not from whence the blood flows. And as he grows ever more furious and bold in his declarations, the tablet grows progressively more damaged and unreadable, as if the god's fury leaves us with nothing but incoherent fragments of declarations, like... Fire where there once was peace, and I shall let evil enter. The second tablet then ends in incoherence, and we pick back up in tablet three, the top of which is also being damaged. Era is still ranting, now making very specific threats as to what exactly he's going to do to the universe. He's going to kill responsible fathers. He's going to cause sons to rebel against parents. He's going to cause atheism. He's going to strengthen bandits and rebels. He's going to snuff out infants. He's going to cause nakedness in the cities and homelessness in the fields. He's going to disrupt burial practices, prevent oracular sacrifices, and yet more as the tablet again fades into merciful unreadability. When we again return to the narrative, it seems that Era has finished proclaiming the violence that he's about to commit, and has begun actually committing the violence. Someone, possibly Enlil, is surveying the destruction, and his first damaged lines suggest that Era has indeed done perverse things, such as taking men who were made sacred to Anu and Dagon in something rather technical called the Kedinu, He's taken these sacred men and turned them against their protector gods. He has, it seems, transformed the streets of the cities into watercourses of blood. Enlil is terribly distraught at the sight of it all, and the mighty god swears that he's not going to drink out of the rivers, which are at this point more blood than water. Which, I mean, seems like pragmatism to me. I wouldn't want to drink out of one of those rivers... But Enlil makes a big deal out of it. Nurgal, though, he replies to everyone saying, hey, maybe stop slaughtering everyone for no reason, by calling out to his seven warriors to come join him in the slaughter. Apparently it was just him up to this point. At which point Isham seems to turn to the audience and bemoan the situation, saying that this is just like when Nurgal slew Asag except that instead of righteous violence, he's directing it towards innocence, and also, even worse, 
towards gods. Those who remember back to episode 13, or who've purchased my first book, History and Myth from Sumer and Akkad, available on Amazon in Kindle, hardcover, or paperback format, might remember that back then it was Ninurta who slew the Asag demon, but at this point Nurgle seems to have syncretized the mighty warrior function of Ninurta. Anyway, Isham turns to Era and demands to know why he's doing all these evil things. Era gives a pretty remarkable reply. Isham, he says, knows the mind of the gods, and since he's aware of the divine plan, there's no reason at all for Isham to be siding with the humans. After all, Marduk himself has risen from his throne, and therefore the entire universe has fallen to chaos. Nurgle going around and destroying stuff is just part of the natural order of things, and in such a situation, it can't be helped. As the kids say nowadays, we live in a society, and Aram is just a victim of society who can't help his criminal tendencies. But Isham is having none of it. In an extensive and partially damaged speech, he sits his master down and explains that, No, Nurgle, you are absolutely wrong here. It isn't society that went and shattered those mountains. You did that. Divine Providence didn't cut down entire cities. You did that. Kings and peasants alike didn't just fall victim to the chaos of the era, they fell victim to you, Nurgle. You, who had sword and spear and noose and net and mace and axe and bow actually in your hands, they are drenched in blood because of your actions, and they didn't have to be. Marduk rose from his throne, but he did so under the assumption that you would be caretaker of the universal order. You control the temples. You control the heavens. You control the earth. You got the keys right there on your belt. The gods are following your command. The people are your subjects. The animals are under your control. You are in charge here, and you are the cause of this destruction. And yet you sit here acting like you're the victim because you did a bad job as Marduk's throne guardian. Talk about tough love. Isham then goes on and on about how Era has brought specifically the city and country of Babylon into a particular ruin, especially a ruin caused by war. Like some kind of blood god, Nurgle has inspired bloodlust in the people of the city. The army's gone out to war against everyone externally, and the people left behind have formed their own armies and warred against the city itself. Some kind of blasphemous civil war gets poetically described here, but we know too little about the situation on the ground in Babylon to connect it to any actual events. Still, Isham records a speech from the leader of one of the Civil War armies, who supposedly led a contingent of royal guardsmen and said something like, You are the men who I shall send into the city of Babylon. You shall respect neither God nor man. Put young and old alike to death. Spare no one, not even the baby suckling milk. You shall plunder the accumulated wealth of Babylon. 
And this seems to have been exactly what happened, which seems to have been the direct cause of the streets to run with rivers of blood. And as Isham finishes his speech, it's almost as if the atrocities of this dark era occurred a second time. And now, finally, Marduk awakens to see the pitiful state of his crown city. He, like Enlil, swears that he will not drink from rivers of blood, and he sings a spontaneous hymn of mourning from mighty Babylon, who had once been tended like a prize garden of the highest gods, and is now a wind-scorched ruin. Its people are now beasts, and the other cities of Babylonia, once subject to its might, mock its ruin, even though the people of these cities are foreign and perverse, and therefore less than good Babylonians. But Nurgle is not cowed by Marduk's agony. He spits right back at the greater god's anguish, accusing him of deserving all this, since the city of Dur, which was a cult center of Nurgle, had been ruined through Marduk's control over fate. Now, it's not totally clear what Era's on about here. He may have discussed his grievance over the city of Dur in some earlier broken part, but this is the first we're hearing about it. Anyway, it seems from his complaint, at least, that the Satans were allowed to invade Dur at some point, and they carried away the cult statue of Nurgle in their raid. Because of this, Era is no longer interested in justice, if indeed he ever was. He's only interested in vengeance. And so he casts the seven winds of war upon the whole of human civilization. We hear that those who don't die in battle will die to plague. Those who don't die to plague will be taken as slaves. Those not carried as slaves will be slain by thieves. Those not slain by thieves will be killed by their own king for rebellion. Those not killed by their own king will be murdered by one of the wandering war leaders. Those not killed by a wandering war leader will be murdered directly by the wind god Adad. Those not murdered directly by Adad will be drowned to de drowned to death sorry, by the Shamash, the sun. Anyone out in the land will be infected by wind demons. Anyone in their own home will be assassinated by sneaking demons. Anyone high up will die of thirst. And anyone low down will be drowned. Enlil doesn't stop with just this, though. He has no quit in him, and he lets Marduk know that kings will despise their mothers for birthing them, fathers will bury their sons, then the fathers themselves will die and remain unburied because there's no one left. Those who build homes will see those homes collapse around them, and then the wreckage of that house will be lived in by filthy squatting bandits. And after all this, Isham speaks replying by continuing the litany of destruction-related things which Era has enacted in his rampage. But at the end of all this destruction, says Isham, Era is still unsatisfied, and he's still worried that the other gods hold him in contempt. So listen, he says, I'm Isham, your dear friend. I can see that you unquestioningly have the power to strike down the mighty or the weak. You can kill the high and the low, destroy the most sacred temple or the most powerful fortress. 
You can smash ships. You can kill infants. You can clog up canals. You can shake the earth, cause shooting stars, rip up trees, and even undermine the walls of the highest god's dwellings. And at this, upon finally having someone to acknowledge his unrivaled martial power verbally, directly, humbly, submissively to him, Era is finally satisfied and pleased. And so he gives a great smile. He pauses briefly in his genocidal campaign, and he calls out to all the foreign nations of Mesopotamia. Now, the list of all the nations is interesting. Sealand, Subartu, Assyria, Elamites, Kassites, Cetaeans, Gutians, and Lilibeans. There is some anachronism here. The Gutians are long gone, replaced by other mountain peoples, but still remembered as the despoilers of the mighty Akkadian Empire. On the other hand, the Kassites are listed as foreigners, despite having been the ruling dynasty of Babylon for centuries. Just an interesting note there. And the list is shorter than we might have imagined. I, at least, tend to assume that there are innumerable minor states around all the ones that we hear about. But given the geopolitical situation in Mesopotamia, there isn't actually much room to exist for long outside any strong empires at this point. And since the barbarian names are probably broad-brush appellations covering a variety of uncivilized groups, it may be that this is actually a good listing of all the foreign nations sometime around 800 BC or whenever it was written. Anyway, Era casts all the war that he'd been imposing upon Babylon instead upon the foreign nations, inciting them to destroy each other instead. And in the rubble of their conflicts, Era prophesies, or commands, the king of Babylon to come in and rebuild the Babylonian Empire on the backs of the destroyed nations. And now that Era is satisfied and is given his great pronouncement, he calls upon Isham and the Seven to go carry it out, while Era settles back into his throne to rest. Thus closes the fourth tablet. And the fifth tablet opens with a bit of a time skip. Era is being called account, called to account for his destructiveness before the gods, but Nurgle is having none of it. It is fine, he tells them, if he destroys a bunch of stuff from time to time. When he's angry, he causes devastation. This is just the way of the universe. And actually, just thinking about it starts getting him riled up again. But Isham is immediately right by his side, assuring him that, yes, yes, Nurgle, everyone knows that you're unrivaled in power, and you can relax in your throne knowing that you've successfully slaughtered your way to universal respect. And so Era breathes out, relaxes back into his throne, and proclaims that his age of destruction is at an end. He gives permission for rebuilding to occur and for prosperity to resume on the condition that all men forever sing the praises of mighty Nurgle and that Isham continues to serve him for all time. Thus ends the tale. 
and the concluding lines offer praise to Nurgle, who is Era, unrivaled god of destruction. And then finally, we get an author's note, letting us know that this tale was composed by a fellow named Kamti Ilani Marduk of the Dabibi clan. But it wasn't, he says, an original composition. This, you see, is a true and holy text revealed to him prophetically in a dream. And what we've just read is the exact recording of the dream which our friend Kabti saw that night without anything added or taken away. Of course, I've paraphrased a bunch, so I guess that doesn't really count and maybe going to have Nurgle's vengeance on me. So if the next episode never comes out, it's probably the vengeance of a Mesopotamian destruction god. Anyway... Uh, on the plus side, we're told that anyone who sings this poem will not die of pestilence, but will be protected all his days by the mighty Nurgle. Nurgle himself ends the poem with the words, Let this poem stand forever. Let it endure till eternity. Which indeed it is, being spoken on a podcast some 3,000 years after its original composition, which is, I think we can all agree, far closer to eternity than most people get. And indeed, it seems like this tale was extremely popular in the Babylonian period, possibly for the seemingly prophetic claim there at the end. If our dating is correct, it was first written when Babylon was in fact at its low, devastated as if by the god Era. But perhaps only decades later, or maybe a century or two, Babylon would rise again just as the poet predicted upon the ashes of its neighbors, verifying the prophetic character of the work. Not only are 36 copies of this tale known to archaeology, which in archaeology circles is quite a lot, dozens of amulets have also been recovered with sections of the story inscribed as if the words of the tale itself had protective power or religious significance. But we've just heard a lot about destruction in a poetic and religious sense. It's generally assumed that this poem corresponds to a particular era of Babylonian history, and I propose that it's high time that we got back to that history. So join us next time as we finally, finally, actually begin the astonishing and terrifying rise of the so-called Neo-Assyrian Empire, beginning with the rise of the first revanchist king of Assyria in generations, the mighty Ashurdan II. I'm excited, and I hope you are too. Thank you for listening.